Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. I'm Tim Moore, your host. I'm joined by Nathan Jones, our co-host today. Last week we began sharing excerpts from our 2023 annual Bible conference. Our theme was, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled, and our goal was to offer encouragement in the midst of so much turmoil in our culture. We developed that theme based on Jesus' promise in John 16, that we can take comfort in knowing that He has overcome the world. We can also be assured that He is coming soon. Now, we've already shared a portion of Pastor Robert Jeffress' powerful sermon. Well, over the next few weeks, we'll bring you a portion of the presentations by David Barton, David Reagan, Tommy Nelson, Erwin Lutzer, and our own Tim Moore. Of course, you can order the complete DVD set with all of the presentations in their entirety, along with two different question and answer sessions. Today, here is David Barton with a motivating message about the faith of our forefathers. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to start with the Bible verse, a fairly simple Bible verse. It's Proverbs 10, 22. It says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow to it. And what we find in a verse like that is God's blessing is something that enriches our life. And it turns out that some of the greatest blessings we have are things we don't often notice. I learned this from a founding father named Benjamin Rush. Out of the 250 founding fathers we have, John Adams said that the top three founding fathers were George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Now, we know little about him today, unfortunately. Very good guy. He started the Sunday School Movement in America, started the first Bible Society in America. He started the first abolition movement in America. He's the most famous doctor in American history. He's called the father of American medicine. Started five universities. He's called the father of public schools under the Constitution, and on it goes and on it goes. He just did a number of amazing things. We have a collection of about 160,000 items from American history, ranging from Columbus all the way through the Bible that landed on the moon with Apollo 14. And among that, we have thousands and thousands of documents of what we call our founding fathers, including a number of documents of Benjamin Rush. We have his prayer journal, and as, he, as he's reading through the Word, he'll write down things that God's showing him out of the Word, speaks to him out of the Word as he, as he goes through. So he has a, a lot of things to say in this. I was reading his works. He was trying to be a solid Christian, thanking God. He was being grateful for all the blessings he had. And he was listing all these blessings, and he go, check. Yeah, that's good, that's good. But he got to one where he says, I thank God for all the times that I have not fallen down the stairs. <laughs> Run that by me again. I'll point out, I just ran up the stairs and nobody noticed it. Why didn't you notice it? Because I didn't fall. If I'd fallen, you would have noticed it, and that would not have been a blessing. The blessing was it wasn't noticed. It turns out that some of the greatest blessings we have in life are things we don't notice. You drive to the store, you come back, you don't have a wreck, you don't think about it. If you had a wreck, you would notice it, and that's not the blessing. So having your health until something happens, or having your family until something happens, or having a job until something happens, some of the greatest blessings we have are things we take for granted. And I would say that there is no place on the face of the earth that takes the blessings more for granted than we do as Americans. We're so used to those blessings, we don't even think about them anymore. And there's a lot of ways of pointing that out. If I take you, for example, to the government we have. Now, we're one of 193 nations this year at the United Nations. There's 193 nations in the world. They all have a government of some type. And governments have been 
been here for a long time. 5,800 years of recorded history, thousands of nations, hundreds of constitutions, and the constitution we have, how does it rank with the others? Cornell University Law School asked the question, what's the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? How long does a constitution usually last over those 5,800 years? And the answer they found was 17 years. Going back and researching all those thousands of nations, 17 years, they length the average constitution. Last September the 17th on Constitution Day, we celebrated 235 years under the same document. Now, we set a world's... We, we set a world's record every year, and most people don't even know when Constitution Day comes and goes because we're just so used to being stable, so used to being all the stuff we have that we don't even think about it. It's just another year, you know, nothing big. Now, I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the one who separated religion and morality from public life for over 60 years. I will say the court has, has changed that. Um, at religious liberty cases, usually win a religious liberty case once every eight nine years, something of the sort. In the last four years, we've won 11 religious liberty cases. We have more religious liberty. <laughs> literally have more religious liberty now than what we've had in 60 years. Now, we have a network of legislators, wall builders, pro-family legislative network, about 1,000 legislators in that network. We monitored 157,000 pieces of state legislation last year. This type of stuff going through now, for example, on Monday, I go down to the state legislature in Texas to testify because we're working on a bill that will post the Ten Commandments in every single classroom in the state of Texas. Now, that's... That's the kind of stuff we can now do as a result of what is, is happened in the last few years. Uh, Oklahoma's trying to put prayer back in the classrooms, prayer back in schools. All this stuff that's been gone for 60 years is starting to try to come back. But again, going to what Washington said, he said, you can't call yourself a patriot if you try to secularize the public square. Now, that's what's happened. And so secular now that when you look at where we are with Bible reading in America, if you go back to the American Bible Society, now remember, rich, religion and morality is what produces political prosperity. So if you want your politics to prosper, you promote religion and morality. And this is where the Bible is so significant. That's a source of religion and morality for us. And as you look at the Bible, the American Bible Society is the oldest national Bible society in the world. It was started in 1816 by our founding fathers. And it was started by signers of the Constitution. It started by justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. It started by vice presidents, by governors. All these distinguished founding fathers started the American Bible Society. And that's why I was joking with Tim. These are all the atheist, agnostics, deists that professors tell us we had at the Founding Fathers who started the world's biggest Bible society. Really? See, what happens is people don't know enough of their history to even know they're being lied to. And so we have no clue who the Founding Fathers were or what they believed. And what we found in 2021 was that Bible reading in America took a steep nosedive. We lost 25 million Americans who no longer read the Bible at all in one year. So that many Americans stop reading the Bible. And that's not good for political prosperity because political prosperity comes from religion and morality. If you're going to stop reading the Bible, you're going to lose religion and morality. And so the report came out just about eight weeks ago for, for this year. It's the 2023 report, and it looks back to 2022, and we found that it turned down again. So we lost another 3 million Americans who no longer read the Bible at all last year. That makes 28 million Americans we've lost in the last two years. 
The result of that is we have a high biblical literacy now. We do a lot of work with George Barn and others, and we no longer, as Americans, know the Bible the way we used to know. When you look at the source of our ideas, that's why what, what President Roosevelt said back in World War II, it's easy to prove. This is the book that they use. He continued. He says, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible's occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. He said, there is no way you can read American history without seeing what the Bible did. Today, there's a whole lot of ways to read American history without having a clue what the Bible did. Because again, we have so secularized our own history that we don't even know what the documents are. The Plymouth Colony was a little different. Their governor, William Bradford, he, he kept extensive records. William Bradford said that when they got here, the Bible was a new book to them because it had been put up for thousands of year, a thousand years in world history. Um, you're not allowed to read it. The people who tried to get it in the common language like Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndall were burned at the stake for trying to get a Bible where people could read it individually. Well, the first English language Bible is printed in 1560, and that's the time that the pilgrims are having their church and doing their stuff. And so when they come to America in 1620, the Bible is still a pretty new book. It's fairly recent. The Geneva Bible came out in 1560, and that's the Bible they brought to America with them. The King James had just come out, and they had that as well. But Bradford says that they would spend four to six hours a day in the Bible, rediscovering the truths of the Bible. And as they did that, in the years they were in Plymouth, they changed a lot of things. And one was their economic system. Um, it's interesting that, that Bradford talked about when they changed their economic system, he said, we use socialism as if we were wiser than God. What's that mean? He says, when you read the Bible, it's really clear God's not a socialist. Now, that's not known today. 71% of millennials today think we should switch from the free market to socialism. 75% of college students think we should go from free market to socialism. So it's not known today that socialism is a really bad idea. We think it's a really good idea. But back then, they rejected socialism and adopted what we call the free market system. The free market system, based on, eight, on five Bible verses, Five Bible verses, and William Bradford talks about verses like 1 Timothy 5, 8, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, Matthew 25, Luke 19, Matthew 20. Those are all the verses that built the free market system, which is the most prosperous economic system in the history of the world. And it came out of the Bible. See, that's our civic and our social institutions, not our spiritual life, our civic and our social life, like our economic system. Uh, another one is our form of government. If you study the Bible, there are seven different forms of government illustrated in the Bible at various places. Founding fathers went through those seven to decide what they wanted to be. They were coming out of a monarchy. Of course, monarchy is one of the big forms in the Bible. You got King Saul and King David and King Solomon and Rehoboam and on it goes. But there were other forms of government as well. And of those seven forms of government, the founding fathers looked at and they looked at democracy. And they said democracy is worse than a dictatorship. Democracy, there are plenty of examples of it throughout the Gospels, particularly with the Romans. And founding fathers rejected it. They chose what we call a Republican form of government. They cited three Bible verses for that. That was Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 1, 15 and 16, and Deuteronomy 16.18. So we've adopted a Republican form of government, rejected a Democratic form of government, and yet the president today keeps saying that we need to save the democracy. No, we don't. Really bad idea. As a matter of fact, if anybody read the Constitution today, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution explicitly prohibits America from becoming a democracy. 
constitutionally, we're not allowed to be a democracy. We are a, quote, Republican form of government. We have to provide that in every state throughout the United States. We even pledge allegiance to the flag to the Republic of the United States. Today, people don't know the difference between a Republican and democracy. It's all the same. They let, no, it's not all the same. There's a huge difference between it. Let me take you to another president. Ulysses S. Grant was president on the 100th anniversary of America. He came out with a card on the 100th anniversary. Uh, you see the card here, top left, 1776, top right, 1876. That's a centennial, 100 years. He's the president. It says centennial, and it says, message of President Grant to the children and students of the United States. The children and youth. So what is the president going to tell the children and youth? Here's what he said. He says, hold fast to the Bible as a sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your heart and practice them in your lives. He said, to the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization. And to this, we must look as our God in the future. Write thoughts and nations, sins, or reproach to any people. What do you think happens today if any president does that for the youth of America? But see, back then, he said, guys, the only way we keep America on track is if you stay in God's Word, because this is where we get all of our civilization. This is where we get all of our institutions. And we've allowed ourselves to be compartmentalized that religion goes in church, it goes in our faith life, but it doesn't go in public life, and it does. Listen to what Benjamin Franklin, a supposed deist, had to say to the Continental Congress in 1787. This is what he told him. He said, in this situation of this assembly, Groping, as it were, in the dark for political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us. How has it happened, sir, that we've not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning, Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. That is true. Back when Congress started in 1774 and they were meeting in that room, they started the first session of Congress with a two-hour prayer meeting. So they started it off with two hours of prayer. They had Bible study. They studied four chapters of the Bible that morning. John Adams wrote his wife, Abigail, said what had happened to Congress that morning. Uh, they called the nation to a day of prayer and fasting. He said, guys, don't you remember what we used to do in this room? He said, in the beginning, Constance of Great Britain, he says, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. He says, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And that's one of the fun studies of the revolution, seeing the absolute irrefutable miracles that God did that cannot be explained through any Physical means were that God flat changed. We won at least four major battles because God changed the weather in the middle of the battle. And the weather, for some reason, hit the British and not the Americans in the same battle. How do you do that? See, there's records, really clear records of what God did with weather. And we won some major battles because of the weather. And that's what he said. He said, guys, we've had so many examples of a superintending prophet in our favor. He said, and have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or, or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He says, I have lived, sir, a long time. Yes, he had. He says, and the more longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we should succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth 
prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and his blessings and our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, that's a slightly religi religious tone to that speech. <laughs> and that is indisputably the least religious founding father. Franklin, hands down, the least religious. Nobody's going to dispute that. If he's the least religious, what does that tell you about the other guys? So, that little speech you just saw of Franklin was 14 sentences long. Here's the question I've got for you. How many Bible verses did you see Franklin quote in those 14 sentences? The answer is 14 Bible verses. These are the Bible verses that Franklin just referenced. Now, notice he did not give a single Bible reference on any one of them, but everybody else in the room knew that those were Bible verses. So, how is it that... that Franklin knew that many Bible verses as the least religious founding father. Well, pretty easy. Jesus gives us the answer. How did Franklin know those many Bible verses? How, how could Franklin speak Bible verses like that out of his heart? Jesus told us in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Franklin could speak those Bible verses because he had memorized those Bible verses. They came flowing out of his mouth because he had done a lot of Bible memory work. Consider a letter President George Washington wrote in 1790 to a Jewish synagogue he planned to visit in Rhode Island. And so Washington writes back kind of a presidential letter, which is, well, that was a really nice letter you sent. Thanks. I look forward to seeing you when I get there. And here's just two paragraphs out of the letter he wrote back to them. He says, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. Now, that is two sentences. How many Bible verses did he use in two sentences? Answer is 10. His whole thing was just one Bible phrase after another, and these are the verses that he used in those two sentences. How did these guys do that? Again, they memorized the Bible. They're just speaking what's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what they had memorized. So those are God's three institutions. And with God's three institutions, probably one that Christians today know the least about is that of government. Now, that's not a problem in previous generations because we understood that government was an institution of God. We studied it like we studied the family of the church. Great example is that book I mentioned earlier, John Locke. He did the two treatises of government. This is the book, The Third Most Cited Individual. This book in 1690... You can still get it today. That book is less than an inch thick. It's less than 400 pages. John Locke in less than 400 pages showing how civil government is to operate. He references the Bible more than 1,500 times on the operation of civil government. Now, I do a lot of pastor's conferences. Um, we were just this past week in Washington and, and Oregon. We'll do two or three pastor's conferences a day across the state. And so I can ask a group of pastors, Name all the verses you can think of on civil government. And if I get a dozen verses named, it's, it's a big time. 1,500? Really? See, we don't know what the Bible says about civil government anymore because we tune that out. Christians don't do that. And so we just tune it out. And we don't even pay attention to what's in there. And so those three institutions, as a result, what, what's happened is Americans have really, we, we've kind of left the government side out of things. That's not part of our focus as Christians. And as a result, we've really become two-thirds Christians. Pretty good on the family, pretty good on church, but we're not good on government. We've got to become three-thirds Christians. We've got to get back involved in that arena. 
Charles Finney, a leading evangelist in the 17 and 1800s, had this to say about revival in America. He said, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. He said, politics are part of a religion in such a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. Now, that's pretty stiff all over, but again, they understood there were three institutions, and what happens is if you have a revival now, and it broke out in schools, schools are going to crush that revival. They already do anyway. They tell the kids, you can't express your faith publicly here. You can't share your faith with others. We've got a system that if we had a revival break out, it would try to crush that revival. That's why you have to have government on the side, because otherwise it will crush it. And it's doing that now. It's crushing the family, and it's crushing sexuality, and it's crushing gender, it's crushing all the stuff that it doesn't agree with, which is why you have to be involved, that you have to get different policies. And he concludes, he says, God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. He said the purpose of public education is threefold. He said the number one purpose of public education is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the number two purpose of public education is to teach students to love and serve their country. He said the number three purpose of public education is to teach students to love and serve their family. Notice the order. God, country, family, nearly every Christian I know today would say, no, 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 that's out of order. It should be God, it should be family, and it should be country because family is so much more important. And Dr. Rush says, no, you're wrong. It should be God, it should be country, and it should be family because as he pointed out, if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy of your family. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. I'll close with this challenge came from Matthias Burnett. He was one of the great preachers back in the American founding. And he summarized what they had been taught back then and what they were teaching and what was being taught from the pulpit as well. He said, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. Now that's interesting that we answer to God for our rights and our rulers. Our rights aren't up to us, that's up to the government. No, he said, no, no. You will answer. See, they saw it as a stewardship. John Adams and other founding fathers explained it very well. We would stand before God one day and account to God. We all know that Jesus tells us Matthew 12, every idle word we speak we'll give account of. We know from 1 Corinthians 4 that our thoughts we'll give account of. We know from Hebrews 4 that our actions will account to God for that. We'll stand before him and have to account for it. And, and he'll say, I gave you your life. What would you do with your life? And we'll have to account for that. And, He'll either say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he'll say, thou wicked servant, depart from me into eternal fire. And they'll say, I, I gave you your family. What'd you do with that? Well, Lord, they turned out really well. I raised them in nurture and admonition of the Lord. I, I, I loved my wife. I respected my husband. All the things you said. Well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you your possessions. What'd you do with that? I, I was a good steward of it. I, not only did I tithe, I gave offerings as well, and I helped the poor, everything you said. I gave you your country. What'd you do with that? Oh, I decided not to get involved in that one. That's not an acceptable answer. So he closed it with this. He said, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. We've been given them just an unbelievably remarkable trust of the Lord. When he comes and we offer it back to him, is it in better shape than it was or worse shape than it was? How good of stewards have we been? All of our speakers engaged in a dynamic and insightful question and answer session during lunch. Nathan Jones and David Bowen were able to join us. One of the submitted questions asked, what to do when a church goes woke? 
or when a person finds themselves unequally yoked in a particular congregation. David Barton offered biblical wisdom. There's 384,000 churches and senior pastors in America. George Barner working there, calling 500 pastors a day, asking six questions. Did Jesus live a sinless life? Can you earn your way to heaven? Is there an actual heaven and hell? Six different things. 72% of pastors said they did not agree with that. So you're looking at that point, 72% of pastors don't agree with basic orthodoxy. So there's 107,000 pastors that do. We call them theologically conservative. Within that group, they're still a whittling down to only 2.8% are willing to talk about things that are going on in the culture around them. They don't think they should be talking about what's happening around them. So a lot of that, again, polling, 77% of Christians say they self-censor for fear of being attacked if they say something that's true. And in this culture, we don't want to get attacked, so we just keep our mouth shut. And as a result, the other side is gaining. So if I go back to what's in Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, verses 10 through 12, it says, because they did not love the truth, God sent them a delusion, they believed a lie, and they were damned. So love of the truth is a hard thing to do. Speaking the truth is especially hard for American pastors today because they get their brains beat in by the woke people in the audience. And if they speak the truth, they're liable to have some flack. So... Uh, the, the chances are very high right now that you'll have to leave a church. At, at least, you know, we're looking at 70 or 72 percent moving in the wrong direction. So that's just where the church is. But we got to get back to a love of the truth. David Barton also responded to another question about how to handle threats to Christian faith at work. One of the big litigation things happening is whether Christians can say no to that kind of, of stuff in the workplace. If a private company demands that you use certain pronouns or demands that you affirm agendas, gay agenda, do you have to do that? And at this point, we're winning all the cases against that, but there is a U.S. Supreme Court decision right now. We think we're going to win. We just don't know by what amount that deals with the rights of, of Christian people in the workplace. It happens to be the post office it's, that is the the plaintiff or the litigant in this thing because there's a guy that wants to celebrate the Sabbath at the post office. And the previous standard we've had for 48 years says, well, you really can't practice your faith in, in the workplace if it's going to make a, a difficulty for the employer. And that's about to go out the door. So at that point in time, there'll be new legal support for being able to say, no, I'm not going to participate in that. But I'm going to also throw one, one other thought in there. In Revelation 21.8, um, it, the scripture goes through who goes in the lake of fire and it talks about the, the horror mongers and the adulterers and the liars. Number one on the list it says the fearful and the cowardly and so we got to get a backbone even if it costs us a job hopefully the Christian community will all come together. Founding fathers said look we might as well hang together or hang separate, no use hanging separately we've got to support one another but we got to get a backbone at some point and we're about to have the Supreme Court give us a win on this and when that happens we need to be aggressive in pushing that. Uh, we need to make sure we can turn the culture back. They're aggressive pushing us. We've got to push back. The three DVD set contains the complete presentations by Robert Jeffress, David Barton, David Reagan, Tommy Nelson, Erwin Lutzer, and Tim Moore, as well as both question and answer sessions. For only $25, and that includes domestic shipping, we'll send you the multi-disc DVD album. It also makes a tremendous resource you can share with friends or watch as part of a Sunday school class or Bible study. Just visit our online store or call the number you see on the screen. David Barton shared how the New Jersey schools used to expect first and second graders to memorize the entire book of John, along with many other passages from the Bible. Our society is quickly casting itself adrift from its biblical foundations, but Christians should be so steeped in the Word of God 
that we cannot be shaken and our hearts cannot be troubled. We pray that this series will help ground you to the rock of our salvation and cause your light to shine even brighter in this darkening world. Until Christ comes, we've got work to do. Well said. During the Korean War, Marine Colonel Chesty Puller was told that he was surrounded by the enemy. Puller's response was, good, they can't get away from us now. We need to have the same sense of purpose and confidence of victory because we also live in a target-rich environment. Let's rise to the challenge David Barton laid down and be stewards of the blessings of freedom handed down to us. Until next week, I'm Nathan Jones for Lamb and Lion Ministries. And I'm Tim Moore. Let not your heart be troubled. Godspeed. Thank you.